0: So, lock and load, bag and board, and roll for initiative. We've got your Nerd Alert. Hello there. It's Obi John Kenobi, your favorite host in all the podcast, and welcome to an all new Nerd Alert. Joining me this week, my stalwart right hand man, my co host with the most, the man who keeps the nerd in
1: the Talk Nerdy to Me network, Commander Scott. Greetings and felicitations. So, uh, I came across something here recently that just blew my mind. Uh, um, I'm going to throw this out to everybody listening with the caveat that I have yet to be able to one hundred percent confirm this. Mm-hmm. So, if I'm wrong, I've got a disclaimer. Um, I found out that Robert De Niro apparently has in his standard contract for, you know, when he works. He has a a, a rider, which is, usually a standard clause that goes on 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 all this stuff um, that states that any prop that he handles during a production belongs to him. Now this has caused problems in the past because productions have had to buy props, which didn't belong to the studio uh, so that they could give him per his contract. They they forced them to purchase things that were other people's when they became a prop. Um, Now he does this, for a couple of reasons, one, Robert De Niro is 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 a very private person. Outside of his movies, he stays out of the public. Uh, he's maintained a private life, and he really doesn't like the 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 idea because he knows anything he touches in a movie is automatic gold on the secondary market. You know, if it belongs to somebody else and it gives and it goes back to them, they're gonna sell it. They're gonna make a shit ton of money. He really doesn't care for that. Second, he likes to take these things because it's now a commodity, and and he knows it is marketable, and and he does sell them occasionally, but he does it for charity. I don't know specifically what charity, but he he has donated stuff to raise money for charity. I'm assuming multiple charities. And when he doesn't do that, though, he actually has a collection of these props, which is housed at the Harry Ransom Center at the University of Texas, which currently has over 8,000 props from him. So, yeah. Nice. Does that mean?
0: Does that mean the underwear that Aubrey Plaza was wearing when they had that awkward sex scene the Bad Grandpa and now belongs to him? Well, is that considered a prop?
1: Well, or is that did costuming? He hold, did he hold it? Oh, he I'm held not, it. <sighs> yeah, because the way the way I've always categorized it is if it's sitting just in a scene, just on a shelf or on a table or on the floor, just it's in a scene, it's set dressing. If it's held by an actor, it's a prop. If it's worn, it's wardrobe.
0: When does something you're wearing become a prop? If someone else, anyway, that's a different time. Thank you, Scott. Anyway, for informing us of the Robert De Niro collection of random junk I held in a movie once.
1: (laughs) Yes. Apparently at the University of Texas. I think we should make a pilgrimage sometime.
0: I mean, look, I see certain objects or items that are, you know, like from iconic roles could be. But, you know, here's the cell phone he used in uh, Analyze That, too. Like, yeah, I don't know. I don't think that's, I mean, I'm sure somebody will pay money for it. But, like, I don't think anyone's rushing. As opposed to, like, you know, here's the... Uh, I don't. I doubt it was part of his writer back then. But like, here's the uh, snub nose thirty eight he uses in Godfather Part Two to kill his first person and join the mob. Like, okay, there's a prop I can see people paying money for. But like, you know, some of this random stuff. I what do I, I know?
1: I don't know. I'm I'm curious. You know, whenever he's, you know, in in the toilet or something, if he flushes the toilet, is that considered a prop? Do they have to rip the toilet off the wall and give it's him thin? Li-
0: it's a thin line. <laughs> uh, I'm reading. Uh, I'm reading this book about the making of Aliens, um, and they talk about part of the difficulty of the shoot in Great Britain is the film industry in Great Britain at that time. In a way, I don't know if it still is or not. Was very very regimented in you, know, you as so say you're, you're you're a set decorator, but you can't build anything for your set. That's a different department. Uh, you can't rearrange anything because that's a different department. Uh, so the uh, the <laughs> special effects guys who came over from America, who came from the world of low budget Roger Corman, where you wear you know multiple hats on a production because you have to, uh, found they couldn't. They had to do stuff at night when no one else was around because they couldn't get it done if anyone <laughs> was there from like the the unions. Because like, hey, you can't do that. You gotta call the construction. Oh, you can't do. that. You gotta call the set company. You can't do that. That's a prop. You have to go to the prop department to come do that.
1: Wow. Yeah. Uh, but they're <laughs> like, yeah, yeah,
0: I, got I don't know if it's still like that.
1: Yeah, they're like, dude, we're just making a movie here. I, I just want to move this four <laughs> feet to the left. That's it. That's all I want to do. Exactly. exactly.
0: Yeah. No, 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 no. You got to get a grip to do that. You can't touch that. Uh, but that brings us to today's topic. Uh, if you couldn't already suss it out. I know we're super clever about hiding our topic, even though it's going to be in the title and the description of the episode you clicked on. But anyway, today we are talking about props, uh, those super cool things you see in movies held in someone's hand. And thank you, Scott, for giving us the uh, the definition or, or difference between set decoration and a prop. Uh, if you see it in the background, it's set decoration. Uh, you know, If you're looking at a desk, uh, say it's a detective story and he has a phone on his desk. That's that's set uh, set dressing. If the phone rings and he picks it up and answers it, now it's a prop. Yeah. If he puts Editing. a cord on
1: it and hangs it around his neck, it's now wardrobe. Ta-da!
0: <laughs> and don't you dare cross those, or the union will get right over you on that. Uh, but we're talking about some of our favorite and iconic props from movie history, and because we're nerds, Uh, we're going to go into a little bit about uh, one of my favorite things of all time, uh, found object prop building, which is, here's what you know it as, here's what it was really built off of, which I think is just endlessly fascinating. Uh, But, Scott, do you want to start us off? Do you have a
1: process to talk about? Well, you know, so there's one that that pops into my head. So, first of all, there's there's two things. Uh, This may be a nitpick on my part, but when I... When you say to me found object prop, okay? Yes. I, I I see that as a prop that of course was bought off the shelf or gotten from wherever, but not but either not not altered or altered minimally before it's okay. used. Okay? Okay. Now, the 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 example I'm going to give is you once said that that I could I could I could talk Trek in any any topic, and this one's a plethora of stuff. <laughs> so
0: I apologize in advance <laughs> to the listeners for me apparently saying that in the past.
1: Um, so there there's there's a found prop because I love found props. And the part of the reason why I like found props is because I can look at it and go, ooh, I could potentially get that. and I could have something that's the same as screen use because I love props. and uh, in in Star Trek: The Original Series, there's a couple of episodes where Kirk or McCoy or somebody drinks Sarien brandy. Okay. Oh, okay. And I know okay. you've seen this because everybody has seen this. Even people who don't watch Trek have seen this. It's that it's that bottle that's like an amber col- color that has the curved neck on it. Okay. I, I, you know what I'm talking about? I do. Okay. So this bottle. Is actually a bottle from the Dickel Whiskey Company. Okay, it was their good old George Dickel, good old George Dickel, which is a very good whiskey, actually. Yes, uh, it is. Um, it's it's their fiftieth anniversary bottle. It was produced, I think, in nineteen sixty-three. Okay. Uh, it had, so it's, so it's a, it's, it's an amber colored bottle. It it has that curved neck. That's exactly the way it came. It has a leather harness on it. And I mean, real leather that, that, you know, goes around the, the top and is, is circled around the bottle it has a handle that connects it to, and that was the pouring handle, excuse me. And it has a, a, a stopper in it that was connected to the harness by a, a leather, uh, lace, uh, a really nice prop. Now in the show, The leather, the the two pieces of leather that go around the top and bottom of the bottle, the leather handle and the stopper are orange. Okay? Okay. And there's an orange stripe that goes up one side of the bottle that connects the two leather straps. Now, the reason for this is because the leather strap at the bottom, at the base of the, the bottle, had printed on the leather... Dickel Whiskey Company. Nice. So they, so they had to hide that. So they hid it with orange gaffer tape. <laughs> and up the side of the Nothing bottle... Nothing
0: says throw together at the last minute like a piece <laughs> of orange gaffer tape.
1: Yep. Yeah. So up the side of the bottle, it has Dickel Whiskey Company embossed on the bottle. It's actually embossed in the glass. So they covered that with orange gaff, gaffer tape. And then, of course, just to make everything tie together, they just covered all of the leather in orange gaffer tape. So, yes, it is altered somewhat. It has the the tape on it, but that's just to cover the brand name. But it's a found prop. It was found on the shelf. It was brought in and it, it you know, it, it, was, it was just used as a bottle. Uh, several years ago, I was very lucky because these bottles are getting very hard to find. And the reason being is because of Trekkies. Uh, we buy them, we snatch them up, and then we don't let them go again. So there, there's very, very rarely are they they on the aftermark. I was lucky enough to be walking through the Peddler's Mall in Georgetown, uh, Kentucky, and I was walking by and I stopped because out of the corner of my eye, I caught a shape and I turned and it was one of those bottles. The only thing it was missing was the the stopper. It didn't have the stopper with it, but it was three bucks and I was like, that's mine. mine." (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I love the uh, crazy prices. Random things will go for on eBay because of nerds. Uh, looking at you, M- Motorola MT five hundred radios. Uh,
1: talking about crazy money for things that you know go on eBay because of yeah. nerds. The the Graflex flashbulb handle. Oh, we'll get to that. Put a pin in that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh,
0: definitely. Yeah. Uh, so so yeah. Uh, Found object prop building, and I guess uh, uh, the second term you're you're thinking of a uh,
1: kit bashing. Is that where you're going to go with that? Kit bashing, yeah. Okay. So okay. that would be what I would consider. Like if you take something that's a found object or just a number of found objects, and you put the put them together in a new way with a new paint job to make a whole prop. Case in point, one of the one of the most iconic ones uh, is, and this is something I learned here in the last year or so. Uh, the escape pod from star Wars, a new hope that, uh, C3PO mm-hmm. and R2, uh, uh, escape off of the tantive four with uh-huh. don't that, you know what, you know what that shooting model was made out of the, at its core
0: uh, a potato. No. Oh, okay.
1: Now, of course it's got bits and bobbles on it and it is painted, but at its core, it's two KFC chicken buckets.
0: Ah, nice. Yep. Uh,
1: so, to me, the difference
0: in those terms, found object means we found this thing, we dressed it up a bit, now it's a prop. Kit bashing to me always means more model making because you specifically bought a model kit and bashed it together. Uh, the original AP or even the original um, uh, dropship from Aliens was kit bashed from some Apache helicopter uh, kits and a few other random things. Uh, famously, uh oh god what is um shoot is aliens no, uh, the, a bunch of the nostromo exterior model is literally kit bashed. They, they went to the model store to try to, uh, to find stuff they could kit bash and um all they could find so there are if you look really close to the original model there's lots and lots of intercrossed tie fighter wings because that's what they bought at the, at the store they just <laughs> literally stapled them to the the model and painted it and shot it in front of all the wind and smoke because uh, you weren't going to see it in that much of detail anyway. So to me, kit bashing is more of um, model making, uh, not so much prop. But they're kind of they're, there's a sweet spot in between on all those. So what it, we can argue semantics over what they're called later, and I'm sure someone will scream at us on, on internet for it. But that's what we're talking about basically. Uh, yeah. Is is yeah.
1: yeah. And you're not wrong. I mean, kit bashing traditionally does apply a lot more to model making because I mean well hell the uh the trench run for the Death Star when they built those those large scale models which is just big I forget how big it was but just big flat sections I mean that's thousands upon thousands of like you know uh, uh naval model uh kits uh because the 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 turbolaser turrets were literally just of course they had the towers that they made but they're literally just just the, uh, uh, the 105s from World War II era battleships on okay, top I of those, as those turrets. So, yeah, kit bashing. Yeah, it, it definitely does. Uh, but once again, personally, I, I apply it. it. To me, it depends on how heavily modified the found object is.
0: Fair enough. Uh, well, we've been bringing it up a lot. Let's dig into uh, the bulk of my list, surprisingly, Star Wars Um, because there's a bunch that fit under this category over decades of movie making. Um, So the original Star Wars, uh, when it was being made, was not Star Wars. It was that weird science fiction movie Fox is making. And (laughs) corners had to be cut, budget had to be minded. Uh, and, And one of the things Star Wars at the time, and even now, is praised and beloved for is, it presented audiences with this notion of a lived-in sci-fi world. Yeah. It's it's you know crazy alien planets and in creatures and whatnot, but everything has a real-world lived-in uh, quality to it. The spaceships are old and dinged up, and you know uh, the the, the Millennium Falcon is essentially like a giant space pinto, you know. It's not like, I don't mean this is a site, I'm not getting into a Star Trek, Star, Star Wars debate, but the Enterprise is always presented as like, you know, pristine and clean and cutting edge and like the ships we see in Star Wars. Not so much. No. Yeah. We we see the Millennium Falcon and the first thing that's described as that hunk of junk, like, you know.
1: Uh, can, 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 I, can I relay my favorite Millennium yes. Falcon prop story?
0: <laughs> Go for it.
1: That I love because it came about. I, I saw an interview with Harrison Ford where he was talking about being back on the cockpit of the Falcon. Yes. Uh, um <laughs> filming The Force Awakens, you know. And he was talking about he was looking at it, and he's like, he's like, it's it's not quite the same. He says, because when we did the original in 1977, he said, you know, th- this is all like brand new stuff to build this cockpit. He said when we did it, it was all, you know, broken down surplus stuff. He said all of the switches in the old Falcon were so were, were, were so worn out that they wouldn't stay toggled in the upright position. you flip them. They just fall right back down because they were just so worn out surplus junk that all is what they had just to even build the sets and the props with. So I always like that,
0: yeah, and then I, I believe his uh, a little paraphrase of my uh,
1: we we've got money now because <laughs> the switches stay up. Yeah, we've got money. You can tell because the switches, are nice and crisp and they stay where you put them yeah <laughs> uh, but so that that whole again it, it came out of sort of
0: necessity but it ended up being one of the things that uh made the movie and that universe so beloved uh yeah. and part of that goes to you know the things we've got to rotate to with, with props because we're nerds is the weapons in the movie and being shot in uh in, in england in the 70s and we need Weapons to outfit the entire, you know, rebel uh, guard and the the imperial stormtroopers and all these people. What are you going to grab? World War II surplus, which gotta was,
1: love, got to yeah. love
0: World War II surplus.
1: Yeah, you couldn't you couldn't swing a dead cat to paraphrase an old colloquialism from here in Kentucky without hitting <laughs> World War Two surplus. Uh, and bless it, because some of the most iconic
0: props in film history Are because of World War II surplus. So let me jump out and get some of the obvious ones out of the way. Uh, Perhaps the most famous laser blaster, whatever it's supposed to be, in all of screen history, the DL-44 Han Solo's blaster. You know it. You'll love it. But did you know it's actually a C-96 Mauser pistol? kit bashed or found object prop, whatever you want to call it. Uh, it has a flash suppressor from an M81 German machine gun, a scope with a custom built mount, which I believe is the only custom thing on the gun. Everything else was literally, we found this and it looked cool. So we, we cut the barrel down and stuck that flash thing on there and put a scope on it. I don't know why we put a scope on our pistol, but it looked good. And there you go. And instead of being a broom handle, now you got a DL-44.
1: You, you know it, it it wasn't until recently, like last year, or so I was rewatching the original trilogy, and, and I finally it, it just occurred to me. I saw it that that Luke is carrying, um, either a DL forty four or one of its really close variants in Empire.
0: Yes, I believe it has an official name, but it's essentially the same thing, uh, because they do redesign Han's gun in Empire, which is why no one likes it. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure if they lost the original prop or what, but yeah, there there is a bit of a redesign to it. Uh, Grit could tell you all about it. I'm sure.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We we got a friend that that that's that's his thing, and you know he loves it. I tell you what, I love his DL44 that he bought and and, and the kit that he bought and put together
0: because yeah, it's
1: nice. it's as close to a accurate, non-functioning replica of the Mauser broom handle as you can get. And I've looked at it and I love it. And I love playing with it. But then I look at like where he got it from and I'm like, I don't want to pay that for it. <laughs> yep. Uh, I'm trying to make a less expensive version of that to replace my
0: Halloween sword version. But uh, that is sorry. Luke's is the M57 blaster pistol.
1: Ah, see, I didn't know it had an actual
0: name. I knew it. Did. Everything has a name. Sorry. But yeah, it's essentially the same thing.
1: Um, now good. <laughs> riffing off of this or transition. Okay. Of I don't know what I'm saying. Going with the blasters and stuff. Um, one of the things that kind of upset me with the Mandalorian, uh, was that, you know, Mando's, the the new one, Mando's actual blaster pistols that he has. Yes. So I never liked the way they looked because like the body of it, when you look at it on screen, the, the body of it, um, just looks like, like it's a piece of plywood, like cut to shape with a finger hole and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and part of the reason why I love the, uh, um, um, shit (laughs) the original stuff that's built off weapons is because it's it's bulky enough to have actual internal working mechanisms but this never looked like it did and i'm like well that's just stupid it doesn't it doesn't look like it could have an internal in, in mechanism and and i found out recently that well i'm just full of shit because it's actually built off of an of an actual uh uh pistol from uh the 19th century it's uh and i forget the actual name of it i don't have it here in front of me i'm sorry it's 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 uh but it's a german pistol from 18 like a model 1894 um yeah it's an actual it's an actual weapon it's built off of that platform and stuff and i finally i saw that and i i came across that when i was doing research and i'm like well crap i gotta eat those words now damn it
0: (laughs) (laughs) well yeah and you're right scott um so we'll just jump into this this uh, tangent. Uh, one of the things you know people disliked about the the prequels when they came out is they felt and looked different. Mm-hmm. It did. It didn't. You know, you would hear people say it doesn't feel like Star Wars. And when we talked about you know the original film and and you know the original trilogy. Most of the props and things were found objects. It was you know, what did we have laying around the machine shop that we could repurpose for whatever it needed to be. And when we got to late 90s and we're working on episode one sort of like with the switches in the millennium falcon we got money now uh so what was at one point sort of built out of necessity okay we get han solo's got to have a laser blaster okay what does that look like well he's like a cowboy so like it's a big bulky gun that he kind of like slings off his hip okay what do we got that we can make look cool It then became well. uh, The art department has fifteen different uh, possible uh, designs for this, and George will come through and stamp the ones he likes, and and then we'll make that into a maquette. And if he likes, uh, you know, he likes four of the designs, we'll make four maquettes, and then we'll pick one blaster, and then we'll three D print that, and we'll resin print it, and we'll uh, come up with stunt copies, uh, foam foam copies for stunt work. And while I argue that I think that actually lends Uh, a degree of authenticity to the prequels because they are a different era in star Wars Uh, when they're an era when people took more time to craft and build things. And then, you know, the era of the original trilogy is more of the down and dirty. Everything's by necessity because resources are kind of becoming thin. Uh, Anyway, part of the reason the prequels feel different uh, is because there was very little, if any found object prop building, every a lot of things were designed from the ground up. Let's um, so talk lightsabers for a second. So you brought this up earlier. The arguably the most famous and most recognized lightsaber in Star Wars is the Skywalker saber, whether it's Luke or Anakin or Ray, whatever the the Skywalker saber, Excuse which you, is use, built. Good. Sorry,
1: that's Finn's lightsaber. Um, i stand correct
0: yes yes sorry finn's lightsaber from the star wars sequel trilogy uh
1: stolen from him by ray
0: and then destroyed thanks ray uh like you said it was originally a a Graflex brand camera flash with some various bobbles put on it i think they cut up like car mats or something to make that uh the the grips at the bottom um that's what it was made from because well okay read the description of what a lightsaber is okay it's it's like a sword hilt but it's also like technical so okay this is a good base we'll build off that um my famous or, or sorry my most favorite lightsaber ever is the obi-wan saber uh which is a little more complicated and this is also why i'm never going to get to make a, an authentic one uh it co- cobbles together a browning submachine gun booster a sink knob a World War I British rifle grenade body, and a Rolls-Royce jet engine balance pipe, among other things. Literally, it was just stuff they had laying around, and we cobbled it together and and made it, okay, that's there you go, that's a lightsaber, because we didn't know any better. Well, you jump to the prequels, and uh, if if you watch, there's a great documentary uh, about the making of Episode One. and there's a cool scene in there where Ewan McGregor is, is taken aside during his lightsaber combat training, and they literally open up a velvet-lined case full of custom-designed, built lightsaber hilts and tell him to pick one. Bit of a difference between <laughs> 76 and 98. Yep. <laughs> we got money
1: now. Yeah. Now, uh, so I, I have an interesting story about the Graflex hilt, if you... Okay. I don't think I've ever actually told you this story either. Okay. This will be a new one for you. So many, many, many years ago, um, you know, just after the Great Depression when I was young. Um, somehow or another, I had gotten the information for a store that basically dealt specifically in vintage camera equipment. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, oh shit! I wonder if they have a Graflex tube. And if they have a Graflex tube, they're probably going to think of it just as camera equipment, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're not going to think of it as anything. So I was like, shit! I could get a, I may be able to get an actual, you know, a vintage, authentic Graflex flash tube. You know, I don't know if I ever get a chance to convert it into a full blown lightsaber, but if I can get the tube, you know, that's that's something. So I called them up one day, and I had the model number and everything, and I, I said. uh, they said, hey, can I help you? I said, yeah, I was curious. I'm I'm looking for uh, a Graflex model, blah, blah, blah. I had all the information for it, you know, and I told him, right? And mm-hmm. the first words out of his mouth was, oh, the lightsaber hilt. And yeah, busted. <laughs> yeah. He's like, no, we ain't got those, man. He's like, they're, they're so high demand. We, If we get one, we keep it for about a week and it's gone. Damn. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, shit, they're not dumb. <laughs> <laughs> but i was like i was like 25 at the time you know i don't i didn't i didn't know shit so
0: fair enough yeah. fair enough uh but we we do swing full so we're, so we're we're talking star wars and blasters we do swing full circle back around um so we've got you know we went from ah, and we hit my like we went from Literally, uh, necessity being the mother of an invention, and and we, we've got to have uh, okay, we, we've got to uh, outfit all these stormtroopers with weapons, and they would because they're stormtroopers, they would have you know the same weapons. So okay, what do we have a lot of in surplus? that we can kit up to make it look like it's a future you know blaster uh oh okay we'll we'll take a a, um, a british submachine gun the sterling and we got a bunch of those uh just just leave the the stock folded down and, and we'll make it look like uh we'll, we'll, we'll you know, leave the magazine uh um uh, sorry the, the the receiver empty and we'll put some weird technical looking stuff there to cover up the the magazine port it's fun we'll we'll make it look like a blaster and then we end up where you know everything is designed by committee, and you know, here, here's 18 different ideas uh, that we drew out on paper, and you know, you know, testing them and print, you know, 3D printing them and and uh, casting them from resin and all that. Well, we circle back around. Um, Star Wars Rogue One introduced a lot of cool new stuff into canon, uh, including two of my new favorite blasters, because we went right back to the the tried and true method of world war II surplus i don't really know if it's surplus anymore now it's now it's more world war II vintage uh firearms and making those into blasters so you have Jin urso's blaster which is built around a world war one model luger and cassian andors which is built around a very cut down ar-15 People talk about you know Rogue One felt more like a Star Wars movie and and yes you can definitely say well it's set in the time era of of the original trilogy so the you know, it definitely it's it would automatically have that feel because it's the characters and the settings and things you know but I think some of that has to go back to you know we're, we're designing new characters and new vehicles and new weapons but they have to fit within what we know from the original trilogy those blasters look very of the period for, you know, original trilogy, star Wars, uh, the U wing, uh, which isn't really a prop, I guess, but it, you know, the U wing feels like it could be part of the rebel fleet along with the A wing and the Y wing and the B wing. Um, I think in general, the, the design for rogue one did a really good job of sticking within the aesthetic, uh, set by the original trilogy.
1: Yeah. Rogue one is one of my, is one of my two favorite, uh, Star Wars films. And, and I think it gets a lot more hate than it deserves because it was, it was really well done. Um, uh, as for the props uh, and everything, I haven't looked at those props too, too hard uh, just because every time I think about Star Wars props, I, I can't get past the DL 44. It's just. <laughs> uh, and the fact that uh, I'm sorry, going back to the DL 44 in and speaking of the, the new anthology movies. Uh, in Solo, we get to see the DL forty four with the Mauser's detachable stock. Yes. So I thought that was cool. So yeah. Um. No, I mean, found you know, basing props off of off of real world components and 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 having at its core a found object is is wonderful, and it really lent itself well to um the uh uh lived in world of star wars it, it really did uh there are a few misfires
0: oh uh, well, while we're talking about the prequels uh, yeah. they did not completely abandon the notion of found object or kit bashing props um one that's infamous and and i i my question is, is this bad prop building or is it just that now we're kit bashing things from the era that our audience lives in? So, God, you know, this. kids like me who grew up watching the original trilogy might not recognize World War II surplus items, but I recognize the Gillette for her razor. Yes. Trying to fill in for a Jedi communicator. What do you mean trying? It did. It filled it in beautifully did. for a Jedi communicator. Sure it did. It did. <laughs> So you look at it, you go, hey, it's a Razor. <laughs> yeah, but nobody uh, today knows it's a Razor. <laughs> Tell that to eBay, sir. Because you can't find them. Exactly. Well, they're a disposable Razor. They were never meant to last in the first place. Um, yeah, and again, um, I think it's more just at that age i recognized that it was a product i could go walk into a walmart and there it is on the shelf versus like you know and people in 77 may have thought that about some of the props and oh hey that's a bubble you know like they might have recognized it more but for people of my age uh yeah no it did not work out as well (laughs) for them and as far as i know that they kind of dropped it after that movie i mean there might i'm sure somewhere there's some some found uh, found object and some kit bashing in the prequels somewhere, but the, those movies were very, very uh, overly designed. I would say.
1: Well, and if I could go back and tell past me to go to a Walmart and buy you know every one of those things, I, I, <laughs> God, I would
0: buy them all and just sit on them for a decade.
1: In a heartbeat. Yep, yep. So,
0: yeah. Well, that's all I got for Star Wars. So. <laughs>
1: Oh well, uh, so I, I'm gonna I'm gonna kick off of uh, found props and talk about some props that were designed from the ground up to be props. Oh, okay, if you don't mind, go for it. Um, because one I own, and one I'm hopefully going to own. i on the pre order list for it. So. I'm going to go back to Star Trek on us. What a surprise. What can I say? Uh, I in the original like series, so the communicator, mm-hmm. the phaser, and the tricorder. Okay? okay. They were created by a gentleman. They were they were designed and built and everything by uh, uh, the same guy um, named Hua Ming Chang and he was by the you know by the end of his career of course he's a master prop builder. He designed these things from the ground up. From concept art all the way through. Um they were not found, they were engineered. They are beautiful props. They are props that have survived you know even today they're iconic. People know them. And the reason I bring them up is so there's a company called the Wand Company. Now, I don't know okay. if you've
0: of them. I did not ring a bell.
1: So they're called The Wand Company because they, when they started, they created or they sold and they still sell uh, replica Harry Potter wands. Okay. Okay. But not just a replica wand because you can buy all kinds of those. Disney has official ones. They're not Disney. Sorry. Universal. Um, Yeah, Universal has official ones and stuff like that. But these, they had the license way back when. They they designed these. They were Universal remotes. Ah. So you would use different wand gestures to change the channel, up volume, down volume, mute. You would cast your spell. Well, they, they got the Star Trek license and they created a star trek phaser that was a gesture, you know, universal remote. Okay. And I wish I had gotten one because they're 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 stupid expensive now. <laughs> but I did get their second star trek prop, which was the communicator. And one of the things that I love about this company is they don't just create a prop for the sake of props. They create a prop that actually works. Oh. Now, obviously, their 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 phaser was you know, a remote. They can't make an actual phaser, obviously, but they get as close as they can. So their communicator that they did from the original series actually Bluetooths to your phone. Nice. So you can use it to answer and make calls on. It's a wonderful thing. And their level, their attention to detail would put grit to shame. Damn, cause literally what they did with the phaser and the remote or the or no, the phaser and the communicator was they went to the people who still own the only original hero level props built by Wa Ming Chang, and they laser digitally scanned them for dimensions of every facing on. On the uh, I can't speak to the to the uh, to the phaser because I don't own that one, but on the on the communicator they even went down. They went so far as so on on, on the 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 phaser type one, the communicator and the tricorder, the outside black plastic that was used for that. Uh, of course, it was nineteen sixties. It was Kydex, so it was like a heat form plastic that you could buy. Okay.
0: Okay.
1: They contacted the company to get the original textures from the 1960s Kydex patterns so they could reproduce it.
0: That is insanely anal retentive.
1: Yes. And that's the level of detail that they, they go for. And this thing is beautiful. Um, so on, like, like on the, if you, if you look at the original prop for the, 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 the flip open communicator from the original series, it's got this disc in the middle of it, you know, and, of course, they looked at, they scanned the originals for for dimensions, and everything. But they also looked at it while they were there, and they 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 got as much information and detail as possible. They've got access to Wong Ming Chang's original notes and sketches, and 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 his his uh, uh, blueprints may not be the right word, but you know his technical drawings that he did to put things together. And so the way that was put together in the original hero prop was that you had a spinning disc underneath a lens or a, yeah, a lens that would only show like every other like slit, you know? Okay. So that as the under disc turned, it would create different patterns. Okay. And in the original, it was powered by the motor from a stopwatch. That, that's how the original hero prop was powered. Uh, now, they went they so they they got they they took that original disc they took that original pattern they reproduced that that original pattern for the the for their prop and of course it's it's done by an electric motor not a not a stopwatch um, uh uh mechanism but that's that's for because they've they've also got to make these things where they can mass produce them and they're reliable
0: you know and keep them affordably priced so you're not paying you know 500 bucks for one
1: exactly exactly yeah um and and currently and i'm on the i'm on the 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 shit notification list what do you call it uh like newsletter thing The yeah i'm on the pre order list for uh they're currently doing a uh the original series tricorder nice and the level of detail that they have gone into for this is insane because it's not gonna like like the toy like the uh, tricorders where you open it up and it has the lights and sound. Mm-hmm. This tricorder is actually going to function.
0: Function as
1: what? Well, so it'll it'll record and playback both audio and video. It will give you atmospheric readings. Um, so it'll give you temperature, barometric pressure, wind speed, velocity. Uh, and, and, and I don't think they're completely done with all of the functions and the little disks that are in the, 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 the middle section. So you can punch those. So you, you take those out and you load those into the slot for whatever function you need. They're trying to make this as realistic to Wa Ming Chang's original 1960s concept as they possibly can using today's technology.
0: That is both geeky and nerdy, all at the same time.
1: Yeah, and I am looking forward to it.
0: (laughs) Uh, Well, if we're going to talk about props that are specifically designed to be a prop and not, you know, kit bash or whatever, uh, I'm a guy who, who likes his toys. And if you're a nerd and you're a collector, prop is interchangeable with toy. It just means more expensive, better quality. It's still a toy, uh, especially prop replicas. Yeah. And one of the one of the first props I wanted, to- I saw this on screen in a film. Let's talk swords specifically. Let's talk Lord of the Rings swords. Uh, these were designed uh, and and built by the people at a Weta workshop. Um, I forget the name of the swordsmith who designed them, uh, but you can find all that information on the amazing appendices of the Lord of the Rings movies uh, where you can watch like 18 hours of behind-the-scenes footage from everything about how do they write the script to production diaries on the day. It's amazing. But there's one, and and of course, the first segment I immediately skipped directly to when I got my uh, four-disc extended cut with the appendices was the weapons. Uh, no, Just show me the weapons, show me the toys, I want to see them. Uh, these were some of the most beautiful swords ever made. And every sword had three versions and then multiple copies of one of those versions. You had your hero prop, which was made from actual sharpened spring steel. These were real swords that you could really go out and slay orcs with. Uh, they were legit as can be. And according to, to, to legend, Viggo Mortensen pretty much always only used his hero prop unless you know the sun coordinator wouldn't let him or the insurance <laughs> people wouldn't let him uh but he carried it everywhere uh he did not turn it back in at the end of the day shoot he carried it with him it was literally you know, when he was driving around uh, uh new zealand it was in his car with him uh he like strider no, the sword was never far from his side um uh, sorry, this, so you had your hero version. I forgot where I was going for a second. Your hero version. The next step down was your uh, aluminum or aluminum for us Americans, which was uh, a safer version, uh, was still metal, uh, that you could do certain things with, you could do some stunt fighting with. And then the last version, of course, were your stunts, uh, your foam props for stunt work, where you know, you're know you falling off a horse or you know whatever. Uh, and, and even an aluminum blade is going to cause problems. Uh, but these, so first of all, you start with, the design of them, and these were designed by uh, the 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 look of them were designed by artists, and then that design was adapted by the sword makers, and you have this perfect blend of artistry and function. They're still swords; they still function like a sword does, but the level of artistry in these uh, these pieces is amazing. And I want to talk about a couple. First of all, the one hanging on my wall, Glamdring, a uh, sword. Within the mythology built by the elves during the second age, fighting the goblin wars. Uh, It's, it's got a blue leather wrapped handle. It's got elvish runes all across the uh, cross guard um in, in in various elvish inscriptions to give the, the sword strength and power. It's got a mysterious little blue gem inserted into the crossbar. It's got this beautiful uh, uh flared out pommel to where it functions as a pommel, but it also works as a grip where you can get two hands on it because it's a big sword. Um it's got the the design of the the sword uh tapers a bit. It was designed off of sort of like a leaf. It it's it looks gorgeous yet it's badass enough to slay a Balrog. Uh, I, I love this sword. That's why it's hanging on my wall. Uh, and then the other one I have to talk about because we see, you know, swords are always cooler when they have a name and they're always cooler when they get a story. And if any sword in Lord of the Rings films has a name and a story, it's Andril who was Narsil, uh, may the thralls of Mordor flee me. It's the blade that was reforged that we give back. You know, It, it cut the ring from Sauron's hand. And it was then destroyed, and the shards were kept by the elves as sort of a, a keepsake, a memento, whatever. And then they reforged that, and, and it goes from being Narsil to Andoril, and it's given to, uh, to Aragorn to signal him taking back his rightful place as the King of Men, the King of Gondor. Um, it was the first time I ever saw runes on a blade. And I'm not saying it's the first time anyone ever did that, but it was the first time I saw it. And holy shit, that was so badass. Uh It, it is impossibly long. You will only ever see that sword drawn from its scabbard once because Viggo Mortensen couldn't do it. Uh, <laughs> when it was attached to him, the blade was too long. His arms were not long enough to get it out. Every other scene, it's either in the scabbard or he has it out. So you don't see it coming out of the scabbard except for that one scene. <laughs> um. It's impossibly long, but it looks gorgeous. It's a cool look blade. And again, these were designed to fit a certain purpose in the movie. They were designed with a certain level of artistry, but they were also built practically. Uh, and I think they're a great marriage of the two. And you couldn't get away with the prop episode without me bringing up swords because it's me. I like swords.
1: There's nothing wrong with swords. Um, I mean... The uh if you're talking about prop swords, the uh the prop for Excalibur from the movie Excalibur has kind of become the iconic look of Excalibur. Yeah,
0: I'm not sure I'm happy about that.
1: Why not? What was wrong with that, it's a, prop? that it's it's prop. prop? It's a very
0: it's a very, very nice prop. It's a very good looking sword. Yeah. It's also kind of it's also kinda of bland.
1: Well, I mean, it's just not the that, that that's part of its charm is it's not ostentatious. It's subtle. It's like it's like the uh, uh, the grail from Last Crusade. Oh, it's the sword of Christ. It's the sword of Christ, you know. And the you're not the sword pretty, of a carpenter. yeah. You're actually not, <laughs> you're actually not <laughs> far off. because uh, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, in my opinion, the, the Arthurian legend does have some 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 Christ like Christian undertones to it. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, it but it
0: involves searching for the Holy Grail.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, but um, but yeah, uh, yeah, It's it's become if you if you just Google Excalibur, you know, images, you're going to get that sword more than anything else.
0: And I feel that's more of a failing of Hollywood for not having released a better King Arthur movie since Excalibur in
1: 1981, 82. 82, yeah. And see, I look at it as a, a, a testimony to the overwhelming success of the prop designer of that sword.
0: Again, very nice. So if you were like, hey, John, they have an Excalibur replica, I wouldn't say no. I true. just feel like there's a better Excalibur we haven't gotten to yet. Uh, I will say a uh, terrible goddamn movie, but really cool prop. Um, Excalibur from
1: what was it called?
0: Uh, First Night? Le- no, no, fuck that movie. Fuck everything about that movie. No, I hate that
1: movie. No. that movie.
0: That movie yeah. can drown.
1: Now, hang, hang on real quick. That movie yeah. is shit. That movie is yes. complete shit. I agree with you. However, when it comes to props and stuff, the round table with all the swords was cool as shit.
0: Don't care.
1: Uh, that, that
0: movie starts and stops with "Hey, we got Sean Connery to be King Arthur. Awesome! What should we do with that?" I don't know. Richard Gere. <laughs> ah, okay. Our obstacle course. Yeah, sure. Fuck it. Why not? Exactly. It's medieval. I hate pretty that well- movie. Fucking hate that movie. Anyway, no. Um, another. You know, I might watch First Night over this movie, but I think it was called King Arthur: The Legend of the Sword, um, with uh, Charlie Hunnam as King Arthur. It was terrible. It was god awful. It was like Guy Ritchie trying to make a gangster movie set in medieval England, and it was it was stupid as fuck. Had nothing to do with the Arthurian legend, but the design of the sword was pretty cool. I'll give him that. Had a good Excalibur. I
1: don't know. A gangster movie set in medieval Europe does sound kind of cool.
0: Yeah, but not King Arthur legend.
1: Oh, uh, yeah. True. Uh, yeah. Speaking of speaking yes. of blades. Oh. And a prop that I love. Well, hang on. Uh okay. a revision of a prop that I love. Oh, okay. I love okay. the original props, but it's 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 designed from a ground up to be a prop and the original prop master that designed it deserves a lot of kudos for this cuz he he created an icon is one of my favorite props and I have one is the Freddy Krueger glove. Yes. And the reason I say that the, the prop designer deserves a lot of kudos is cause you know, Wes Craven of course had, um, uh, so some input when it came to the character, of course, when he created Freddy Krueger, he basically went to the, the, the prop master in the prop department. And he said, yeah, he's like, so he's, he's got this, this, this glove on one of his hands that has like these razors coming off of it. So it's kind of like, you know, razors on his fingers and stuff and then things. So the prop master is the one that came up with the, uh, uh, as, as long of claws as they are and not just little bitty ones. So you got to give him credit for that look of the long claws. But I I read an interview with him and he was talking about, you know, that it was supposed to be homemade and the original art just had like the metal finials that the, the, the blades are attached to, you know, uh, on the fingers. So he said he started designing the prop as a practical prop. And he's like, he's like, there's no way to attach this. It doesn't, it doesn't work. And so he's the one that came up with the second set of finials and then all of it attached via the back plate to give it structure. Uh Ah, so that whole back plate, which just gives that glove across the top, that whole, uh, I don't know what you would call it. You know, that, that the look of it is all the prop master that that glove is iconic from the prop master now i say i like the revisions because personally the one from three is my favorite if you look at them they're all subtly different uh the ones from one and two supposedly are the same glove but the so if you look at the glove in one uh the fingers are longer and skinnier as far as the copper than in, in glove three. In glove two, it's the same glove as one, but one of the uh, one of the blades had been broken. And so they re-welded it back together and it, it overlaps by like an eighth of an inch.
0: Mm.
1: So you can see the break. Just enough to notice. Just enough. Well, just enough to notice if you're a nerd. assuming yeah. uh,
0: uh, that, knowing who I'm talking to.
1: It, well, uh, and then in three, of course, we get a whole redesign of the glove, and after that, it was a whole redesign of the glove. Uh, uh, and then, of course, we get um, uh, the the whole different look of that organic feel from uh, Wes Craven's A New Nightmare*. While I love the movie, I really don't like that glove because that that glove gives you a context, I think, of 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 the character of the of the villain of Freddy. And that's just not there in, in the new one. But then again, Freddy is different in, in a new nightmare. So we're not yeah. dealing with the exact same Freddy. Once again, love the movie though. And then you get the glove in Freddy versus Jason. And, you know, uh, there's, there's, uh, there's several people who make replicas of these gloves. And I, I've got a, uh, a, a, uh, a replica of the glove from three. And it's very accurate and i love it and I, when i was trying to decide which one to buy i put on a glove from from freddie versus jason and uh, my god is that a heavy glove that is a big honking glove it's huge it's just i don't know i personally i think three is 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 the epitome of all of them that is that is the penultimate freddie glove gotcha I love that one um of course i also the, the guy that made these also made the uh the 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 nes power glove Freddy glove uh, which <laughs> that's is, the glove which, you need which is funny shit to put on and, and i wanted to buy it but it was like 450 dollars, and i couldn't afford it yeah <laughs> I, I, wanted, yep. I wanted it bad <laughs> but i love that prop it's one of my favorite props
0: well let me spin off that then uh another horror icon prop it goes right back to, I guess you'd call it kit bashing. Uh, if we're talking about iconic. Let's talk about the Michael Myers mask. Uh, another perhaps best known or you know, worst kept secret in in yeah. prop building. Yeah, and hey, we're uh, back. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Ties it all together. (laughs) It's a horror icon. It's Star Trek kit bashing. Uh, So, of course, I'm sure everyone listening to the show knows the original Michael Myers mask from Halloween was uh, they they, it was written as a generic mask. They didn't really have much description. So they went out to the Halloween store, bought a few things. And the one that for whatever reason they hit on was this William Shatner Star Trek mask. So they took it. Uh, they did modify it a bit. They they added some sideburns to the hair, they uh, widened the eye holes so the stunt guys could see a bit better. And of course, iconically, they spray painted the whole thing. Well, I don't know if it's spray paint, but they painted the whole thing white. Um, and that became from one icon on to another, that became michael myers from halloween which we've then and again a was here he would take you through the evolution of every mask from every movie including that horrendous blonde haired one that's in one shot of one movie before they realized hey that's the wrong mask guys uh but it's 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 become as iconic as freddy krueger's glove and literally it was we picked it up a halloween store uh modified it a bit painted it white and bam horror icon it's that easy kids it's that easy
1: Yep, all you need that is and, and a, a, like, a 1970 station wagon, and you're good to go.
0: <laughs> uh, just like Scream, that it's went to a Halloween store, bought a costume, bam, instant icon. It's not hard, kids. No, talk about things that go for stupid money on eBay is the, uh, again, Grit would tell you more, but that, that Ghostface costume has been through a, a bazillion different iterations since the original one came out before it was in Scream. So to find, like, a period-correct ghost face mask before it was known as the Scream mask is, like, crazy impossible.
1: Yeah. To find that Gen 1 generic mask, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Oh, well. Taylor! Uh, la-
0: okay. So... so Scott, yes, sir. I'm going to test something here, um, and, and you can play this at home, kids. If you have a, a friend who says they're a Ghostbusters fan, here's a way to test how much of a Ghostbuster fan they are. Yes, I know I'm gatekeeping right now. Get off me. <laughs> Ask them, what if if I said these three words to you? What would it mean? If I told you, Scott Cox, Iona, Shoe. <laughs> Polisher, what would that mean to you?
1: That would mean that I would be completely ready anytime that I needed to look fashionable with a nice pair of dress shoes.
0: Snowing no? in the mess.
1: That, that I mean, mean? You're not wrong, but. <laughs> oh, God. The Iona shoe polisher turned into the iconic PKE meter from Ghostbusters. That's
0: with- what we were looking
1: for. Which technically wasn't built for Ghostbusters, right? That I don't know. I don't think it was, because no. it has shown up in other movies. Well, that yes, but post-Ghostbusters. Yeah. Post-Ghostbusters. but I don't
0: I think d- it's ever shown up in anything pre-Ghostbusters. Because um, it, it, it was somehow famously lost between Ghostbusters and Ghostbusters 2, which is why there are discrepancies between the one in Ghostbusters 1 and Ghostbusters 2, because they had to rebuild it
1: but it wasn't owned by the production company because it wasn't by a prop house. It,
0: exactly. The, the, the prop company owned it. So that's why it shows up in suburban commando and um, they live. Yeah. They, I mean, it might pop up in other things, but those are the, the two best known ones. Cause for but, a while, the best shot you could get for prop building references uh, of the front side of the Pika E-meter was to watch suburban commando with Hulk Hogan. Uh, I'm just checking. Um, Yeah, they live was 88. uh, So that was four years after Ghostbusters. Yeah, Yeah, I don't don't think it ever shows up pre that.
1: Yeah, it may have been built for Ghostbusters by the prop house, but it was it was owned by the prop house. It was yeah. Yes, yes. Um, speaking of prop houses, there's a, Uh a gentleman that I follow on TikTok. Uh, uh-huh. and he, uh, cause you know, that's what, that's what all the cool kids do now. And, uh, he is, uh, he's a prop master, uh, and, in, in, in I guess out in LA, I don't know where he's based out of, but, um, he started out his TikTok channel as telling dad jokes cause he loves uh-huh. dad jokes. That's all he did, but it's get, quickly kind of grew into, he does prop stuff and he's done, he's shown all kinds of behind the scenes stuff. Uh, for props such as, uh, I think, uh, rubberized silicone grocery bags. He has a oh. shit. Yeah. Because, uh, if you have re- regular paper grocery bags, it plays hell with the sound recording.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Uh, rubberized pool balls. He takes, um, <laughs> so, so he takes, um, uh, racquetball. Balls, you know, which are mm-hmm. just hollow rubber, and he just paints them into pool balls. That way, that way, players in the background, people in the background can play pool or even your primaries can play pool without it playing hell with the sound. Interesting. Um, the, the, the breakaway glass that they use nowadays is not sugar glass anymore. They haven't used sugar glass in a long time. It's a two part resin.
0: Probably much safer. Yeah, uh, I don't think that's a, for broken glass, it's usually silicone now, too, isn't it?
1: That yeah yeah he actually did one where he did a two part silicone glass and mm-hmm. uh, he poured they pour it into a cookie sheet and they let it cure and then they break it into small pieces.
0: Yep, yeah, and then you toss that out. So you're you toss you're, that out. So so you're nowadays, out. John McLean would be running on silicone.
1: Yeah, yeah, he's done all kinds of stuff like that. It's 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 cool as shit to see him because he does a lot of stuff from his warehouse where it's literally he just has a warehouse full of props but not like specific iconic props like the Freddy glove or the phasers or, you know, the DL 44 uh, we're just talking generic props, just pool balls and, and, and plastic bags and paper bags and, and bottles and glasses and, and, and just just filled with everyday objects that are designed specifically uh, for either uh, you know, actor safety or um, so they don't you know, mess with the sound guy. Yeah. So,
0: yeah. And, yeah. Uh, there are warehouses in and around Hollywood that are full of just stuff like that, where it's all sorted by of period. So if you're making a 70s movie and you need a, you know, you need to decorate a room to look like an office from the 70s, they have stuff cataloged by, okay, well, this was made in this year. So it could give, you know, it could work for this period of movies. Because, um, yeah, like you said, production companies don't own that stuff. They, they rent it. everything and everything in a movie is rented pretty much. Uh, the camera equipment that's rented, the sound equipment that's rented, the, you know, the sets are built, uh, but, but they're built on a studio where they're, uh, you know, unless they're shooting on a back lot and you know, they're, they're, they're built on a stage and they don't, the, the studio doesn't own the stage normally. Uh, everything is rented. Everything is temporary. Everything is meant to be great and perfect for, you know, the, however many weeks we're shooting and then no one cares anymore. Um, which is something we, you know, we discovered when uh, some some Ghostbuster nerds bought a screen-used proton pack a few years ago, and yeah. immediately because their nerds took it apart, <laughs> uh, and discovered, you know, how chintzy some of those things were thrown together. Because again, it's a prop for a movie; it's meant to to be on screen for a few weeks and work perfectly when you need it on screen, and then no one cares. Uh, So, you know, the the fan built packs were built much stronger to take much more abuse because they're used over and over and over and over over again for years. And and they're inside and outside and they're in the rain and people are grabbing your arms.
1: Well, I I told you Um, that stopped by our booth at uh, LCTC one year that uh, worked for I think he worked for Lucasfilm.
0: ILM. Yep. Mm -hmm.
1: ILM. And, and his job with ILM was, uh, he would photograph, you know, uh, props and stuff for the, uh, the different, uh, making of books and art of the behind the scenes books, where you see the really good pictures of props Mm -hmm. and things, you know, Uh and I chatted with him for a little bit. And, and he said that a lot of times, when making the books or whatever, if they needed a specific prop, of course they requested it from the archive because Lucasfilm has everything archived Um, and it would get there. But, but he said a lot of times because these things were made in the, you know, the 1970s and the early 1980s and stuff, they, they hadn't weathered very well over the course of time, even, even in the archives. So they were cracked. And he said to, to photograph them in high definition, he said, they just look like crap. They, they, They weren't good to photograph, so he would have new versions of them commissioned specifically uh, oh. to photograph. And wow. he was he was looking at our gear, our proton packs and stuff like that that we we had. And he said, "I love your stuff." He said, "This stuff that I see here, I would photograph in a heartbeat." He said, uh, it, "It's it's pristine. It's it's great. Well, not pristine because it's meant to be look weathered, but right." But yeah, he said it's in it's in great condition screen used. he said he said i would I would have no problems photographing uh, these props. Um, but there's a downside to being to being a prop enthusiast and a bit of a prop builder like we have our own proton packs and stuff because we're nerds. Um, you pour so much research into the source material that when you watch the movies, <laughs> you can we can tell when they're wearing the hero prop and when they're wearing the foam stunt prop, Mm -hmm. we can tell when the electronics are malfunctioning because one light is out or the lights are going in a reverse sequence Mm -hmm. or some of the paint has rubbed off and showing white light through the fiberglass shell that aren't actually lights. Yeah. (laughs) That aren't actually lights, but they get put in the video game anyway. Uh, You know, stuff like that. In fact, I remember one time I was watching I had a friend over and we, we were watching uh Ghostbusters 2, I think it was on TV at the time. And so I said, You wanna know something really interesting? He he said, What? I was like, So if you look at the straps in Ghostbusters 2, you see how they're a lot beefier? And I paused <laughs> on the He said, Yeah, they are pretty thick. I was like, Well, yeah. that was that was because, you know, they the actors complained, or at least a couple of the actors complained, that the packs were so heavy it cuts into their shoulders. So they, they wanted more padding. He's like, "Oh, okay, I can see that." I was like, "Yeah." I said, but they didn't actually beef the packs up till they got back from location shooting. So if you'll watch the wide shots, it's a thin strap, and then do the close-ups, it's a it's a wide strap. And if you're watching a scene, it'll go from wide to thin to wide to thin. I started pointing it out, and he's like. Why do you have to ruin things for me? <laughs> like,
0: why do you? Because you're to... a good nerd, and that's what we do. <laughs> we point out inconsistencies, and now you can never unsee them.
1: <laughs> so, my I... favorite
0: in, uh, uh, this is way up props, but uh, in uh, the pilot episode of Firefly, there's a scene where I think it's Zoe, Wash, and Mal are in the uh, the the bridge having a conversation and they pull out to a wide shot and, and then the scene ends very quickly. And on the, the, I think it's the commentary. Um, it's either Joss Whedon or Alan Tudyk points out. Wash isn't holding anything. There was no con. There was no wheel or control to hold. He's just putting his arms out like he's holding something, but there's nothing there. And as soon as they said, I was like, well, I can never unsee that now.
1: (laughs) You know, I don't think I've ever actually seen that. So,
0: I believe it's the pilot episode. Uh, when they decide to go to Persephone to sell the tainted goods, if you, yeah. if you, if you look at the wide shot, there's, there's nothing in wash his hands, he's just miming a control stick.
1: Uh, uh that's okay because he had dinosaurs. So,
0: exactly, he did. I'm trying to see if there's any other props I had written down I want to talk about. Um... I think we covered most of my big ones and and again I really got fell down the rabbit hole of uh um found an object and kit bashing and you know this is what you know it as but what is it really kind of thing so that's
1: fine yeah and, those are the fun props
0: yeah uh and the same techniques go exist outside of of prop building um one of the things I want to talk about that's kind of a cheat because it is not a prop it's a set. Uh, but it's from one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, that is the set of the Nostromo from the original Alien. It was built at uh, Brandywine Studios in England. And the entire Nostromo set was built as one connected, continuous set. So to get from one room to the other, you can just step off stage, walk around, get in the next room. You had to travel through the Nostromo. All the lighting, for the most part, was done practically built into the set. Um, it's one of those things where, as soon as I heard this, I was like, "Oh my god, I would kill to go back in time and just go play on that set." Uh, the, the fact that you know it, it was just because it was all built as one big continuous thing, and and to bring it back to uh, our topic uh there's there's stories of you know again they were on a budget they were limited in their resources so how do we make this this ship look high tech and worn in well you go to an airplane graveyard and you steal everything and anything that isn't bolted down and then you grab your bolt cutters and seal the rest of it uh there, there were stories of you know the the cast you know they'd walk past the the set decoration department or whatever and you'd see like uh, a whole line of beat up old TVs. And then the next day you'd walk on set and, oh, there's the backs of all those TVs that are now glued to the set. <laughs> oh, there's the screens and the wiring from the TV that are now used to look like some kind of technical thing on the set. Uh, uh, I love it because, again, it lends so much authenticity when you're, you, it's, it's real stuff. It isn't really like, you know, a spaceship supercomputer or whatever, but it's real stuff. Um, and, and Ridley Scott insisted in, in certain sections, like in, in the cockpit, everything had a purpose. Every switch had something and every switch did something, whether it was turning on a light or making a noise or whatever, like there was a, a reality to it. It wasn't just like, you know, blinking lights and knobs for the sake of blinking lights and knobs. Um, which is just awesome. Like I mean, when you're a kid, you, you look at those, you think, wow, that's a spaceship. And then you grow up and you're like, well, no, it's a set. But then you find out like, yeah, it's a set, but you know, uh, <laughs> we have springs and the switches and they're real switches uh, it, it adds that sense of like oh they they, they they're nerds too and, they, and it does matter to them that the set does stuff um and I, I i loved yeah that whole set is just it's it's one of the most iconic movie sets you look at it, any any shot you can remove the actors you can take the music out uh but you instantly recognize that set design because it's so iconically alien uh and, and to know it was done on the cheap uh, really quickly with kit bashing and airplane parts and things like that. It's just, it's awesome. It's just like, man, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing what they could pull off back in the day. And uh, in fact, two yeah. of my, uh, sorry, go ahead.
1: No, I was just going to say, I've, I've, uh, I've seen Transformers too. That airplane graveyard is in the middle of uh, Washington, D.C. <laughs> <sighs>
0: uh yeah i'm not taking that bait um (laughs) one of my favorite stories uh movie producer extraordinaire roger corbin the king of the b movies uh he he again this is roger Corman. if you don't know his name you know his work uh he made a living and still does make a living off of just sort of following the trend of whatever hollywood was on so when star wars became big it's okay sci-fi is big we're making sci-fi movies uh, there was one movie production called Battle Beyond the Stars, which is a movie I love. It's it's Seven Samurai in space. Uh, it had a, a young James Cameron as the, uh, I believe he was the set designer at that point. I could be wrong on his title. Uh, but he built some of the spaceships and some of the sets. Uh, the the sets looked good, and, and Corbin shelled out a little bit of money to make them look good because it was one of the first Star Wars ripoffs they were putting out. Uh, But then when Corman discovered they were about to strike the sets in a couple of days, he told the guys, well, hold off. Don't strike this. These look too good. Hold on. Uh, And he went to uh, one of his editors who had been bugging him about wanting to be a director. And he said, here's 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 what's up. I'm going to give you three days on these two sets to go shoot whatever you want. Shoot an intro to a movie that we'll write and finish the rest of later uh you got x amount of money and you know a weekend to go shoot it and that became the movie forbidden world uh a roger corman another roger corman alien ripoff that was literally made because corman liked the sets from battle beyond the stars too much and didn't want to strike them he said no we can get some more movies out of these sets
1: hey say what you will about roger corman as far as his movies and stuff but the man was a hell of a businessman and he knew <laughs> how to squeeze the largest profit margin out of whatever project he was working on. Uh, yeah. Time. Absolutely. And that's what it was. First and foremost, I honestly believe he was a businessman first, filmmaker second.
0: Oh, yeah. to To his core. Uh, but no, that that set is famous for multiple corridors. If you look closely enough, the texturing on the corridors are literally uh, styrofoam takeout packages stapled to the wall and spray painted black.
1: because
0: right. of Roger Corman. Uh, but oh. I think is there anything else on uh, on your list or in your head you want to talk about or well, have you covered?
1: It all? See, there's there's all kinds of things I could talk about for props uh and, and things of that nature um but the, the highlights the 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 crux of prop building and stuff i think we've covered so
0: all right well then uh let us know what do you think of our our list and our talk uh is are there any iconic props we didn't talk about you want to hear us talk about or are there any props what was that uh let us know maybe we'll cover it on a future episode but until then scott thank you for joining me
1: I do what I can. Thank you all at home
0: for listening. And until next time, this has been your weekly Nerdler. 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 Nerdler.
1: Nerdler.
0: Nerdler.
1: Nerdler. Nerdler. Nerdler.